Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peart. I am once again joined by my co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how are you? Hello, everyone. Um, Things are okay. There is literally nothing happening in my life to report. It's just eat, sleep, work, repeat for me. So I'm afraid I haven't got any exciting stories to share with listeners today. Um, Vince, have you got anything that you want to tell the listeners? Anything good happening in your life? Oh, I, I don't, I, you know what? I don't usually get this thrown back my way so quickly. I usually get to sit and listen to you. Tell me something for a couple of minutes while I, ask, I think, is there anything comparable um not so much really not so much works work um in, in all facets that it comes in i um, am kind of looking forward to the world cup world cup starts this weekend uh soccer for our american listeners uh, the world cup starts this weekend um i'm looking forward to it, but i'm kind of not it's a bit weird because obviously every other world cup ever is in summer yet this one is in qatar and they're up to winter um, then it comes at a, a sad time for a Newcastle United fan like me because we're flying. We are doing exceptionally well, and we hope the wheels don't come off. But before I, you know, before I bore everybody with football talk and boxing talk and sport talk, I think we shall leave it there. Um, you haven't got anything at all to say, though, Tilly. Surely, you know, are you looking forward to Christmas? It's are we allowed to look forward to Christmas? It's what? No, no, days? we are not. We are not allowed to think about Christmas. I had this debate with my team at work on Friday last week <laughs> because they wanted to put up Christmas decorations in the office and I banned oh, wow. them from doing so until the 1st of December. Um, I think I might get outvoted and I have a feeling when I go in this Friday, I'm just going to walk into a winter wonderland and I'm going to have no say in it at all. But no, Christmas cannot start until the 1st of December. I like to be firm on that. Well, you know my role, Tilly. I'm still a frontline social worker, uh, part, part-time full, part-time frontline social worker. It's a bit of a tongue twister there, but that's what I am. And obviously I go in and out of a lot of homes. Uh, this week... How many homes do you think I've visited that already have their Christmas decorations up? Oh, 25%? A quarter? Do you know what? Bang on. I, I, did really? four oh. ho- I did four home visits on Monday, and one of those homes had the Christmas tree up. I mean, I, I'm not going to judge them, but I will secretly because I judge anyone that puts their Christmas trees up this early. Sorry. Sorry if I've alienated any listeners out there that have decided that that they're going to celebrate Christmas early, uh, but I will stick by my views on that. Moving swiftly on from Tilly's oppressive practice there towards uh, my clients who decide to put their Christmas trees up early uh, for religious reasons, Tilly, just to make you... I should have said it was for religious and cultural reasons to put it up early. Oh, no, don't throw that at me. <laughs> it's not, it's not. It's because the kids want it up. It makes me sound like the worst social no, no. worker in the world, doesn't it? Um, it's it's because the kids wanted it up, simple as yeah, that. And, yeah. you know... I'm sure if my kids started begging me, they might get worth it. But no, anyway, I'm sure we'll have plenty of Christmas chat coming up in the podcast to come. Today's show, as, as many of our listeners will know, I write a column, uh, a weekly column every Thursday, usually, for Social Work News. There are themes that tend to come up time and time again within my writing, uh, one of which is attacks against social workers. And we are going to cover that. We've got a guest coming on the podcast, hopefully next week, potentially the week after, called Nana. 
and uh, that will be the focus of that podcast. So a bit of a spoiler, not really a spoiler, a bit of an advert for that. We haven't really spoiled the content. It's an advert for what's coming up. And the other theme, which tends to crop up time and time again, because these things obviously make headlines and they tend to be popular on our website, Social Work News as well, is uh, children dying. Children dying at the hands of parents and carers whilst known to social workers. The reason we have to report on these things, both in a in a new sense and also I have to reflect on this in my position as a columnist, the reason we have to reflect on these things and discuss these things is because for many people, this is all they say of social work. I mean, I think back to my own early stages of wanting to be a social worker. That came about following the death of Victoria Klimbeer. That was when there was a push for social workers, and that was the first time that I ever really remember reading about social workers in the national media. And sadly, um, we're here to discuss this again. The reason we're discussing this is there have been a couple of big news stories over the last uh, week regarding uh, children's deaths. One of them relates to an ongoing case. Uh, We can't offer any opinions on the likely outcome of this. We certainly can't offer any views on whether we feel parents were guilty or not guilty. But what we can say and what we have reported on on Social Work News website is that a couple are currently going through court proceedings where they are accused of murdering their 10-month-old baby who had only been back in their care for 39 days. The circumstances of this is that Finley was taken into care just a couple of days after he was born. And then following court proceedings, a decision was made to return him back home, despite concerns being raised by Children's Services at the time. And then Finley died just 39 days after being returned to his parents. As well as that new story, uh, we've also covered another couple of things on Social Work News related to the subject. One was written by myself on November the 2nd, uh, when I'd realised it would have been Victoria Klimbe's 31st birthday. And one of the other pieces uh, regarding children's deaths at the hands of carers was written by our secret social worker and guest columnist, Maisie McDonald. And she made, I thought, quite an interesting point. She made it in a in a bit of a cutting way, um, such as the manner she does. Um, but what she said is that she reminded everyone at a point that it's judges who decide whether children go home to their parents or not, and sometimes they get it wrong. Now, I probably wouldn't have said something so strong, is that I mean it's difficult to sort of criticize judges because often obviously social workers are the ones that get it on get it wrong we cannot predict the future so with that new story about Finley and with a couple of reaction pieces on the website uh, to that and obviously it being Victoria Klimbier's 31st birthday two weeks ago I wanted to discuss this Tilly but it's a difficult one to discuss isn't it it's it, it's I think before we get into this we have to acknowledge that this could be triggering for some people. It is difficult, and we certainly don't know all the answers, do we? No, we don't. It's a very sombre topic, and I think we should probably start off by saying that 
the death of any child or any person actually but but particularly a child at the hands of people who are charged with their care whether that's a parent or a family member or someone in a position of authority any of these circumstances you can't even really put into words how awful it is um we hope that whatever the outcome is that there's that justice for the, the child that's been killed um but it's it's hard to, to know what to say in these circumstances because other than it's it's horrendous and it's tragic and heinous crime or, or or whatever's happened what ultimately someone's lost their life mm. and that's a, a sad day for us all so the question that i think we have to tackle and we may not have an answer to it but we can certainly discuss it is can we stop parents from killing their own children and that, in a sense, is a very, very blunt question. The reason I ask that and the reason I want to try and tackle that topic or at least explore it as best we can is that the response of government to every high-profile child death is lessons must be learned. We will not let this happen again. You know, we, we had the laming inquiry after the death of Peter Connolly. Prior to that, we had the another blaming inquiry and recommendations for on the death of Victoria Columbia. We've recently had more recommendations in relation to the death of Star Hobson and Arthur Labin Joe Hughes, two high-profile cases that came about into the news earlier this year when respective carers were found guilty uh, of the deaths of those children in, in different councils, one in Birmingham, one in Bradford. It feels cyclical to me, Tilly. It feels cyclical in the sense that we have a child that loses the life in tragic circumstances at the hands of the people that should have loved them more, both parents or carers, sometimes a combination of both. Social workers get lambasted in the media, certainly on social media and the public, and certainly are not so subtly from the press and politicians in general. Then we have a knee-jerk reaction from the government that either blames social workers or blames society or blames local authorities. Most infamously, that happened when Ed Balls sacked Sharon Shoesmith live on air um, following concerns that she was somehow complicit or to blame for the death of Peter Connolly in Harangi. Then the government say lessons will be learned. We must do something. And inevitably, this doing something follows a very formulaic process, which is... Let's bring in an expert, whether it's Lord Laming, whether it's Alexis J, an expert, and I'm not, certainly not blaming these experts. You know, they, they certainly want to do the right thing. And then we had obviously Monroe, Heidi Monroe was again brought in, you know, to try and change social work and make it better and ensure that lessons must be learned and these things won't happen again. And then it, it just feels, Tilly, as someone who's worked on the front line of social work for a decade and has been through many of these child deaths, that nothing really changes apart from that same old cycle, which is media outrage, government response, review, and then it just seems to go round and round and round again. Is that maybe in cynical, or, or, or do you, have you seen changes when you were in children's and now that you observe it from an adult perspective? I think from the the time now to the time when I end my social work career, whenever that is in the future, there will sadly be many, many more child deaths, no matter who is in power in government, which 
directors or local authorities are uh, being good and outstanding or which are requires improvement, no matter what training is offered to social workers or education reforms or anything, there will always be child deaths. And that is a, a sad fact that is hard to come to terms with because as caring people we don't ever want to to have to see a child die and, and any death is one too many but in reality people are unpredictable in many ways and people are their own own selves that we can't control everything that they do we're not a police state that monitors our every move and the fact is parents and carers will sometimes be alone with children, sometimes professionals or strangers or, or anyone that, that's guilty of harming a child. And that we, we can't ever stop that from happening. And I accept that in, in many of these high profile deaths that we've come across and the serious case reviews that have come out of them, that there are lessons that should be learnt and there are certainly improvements to be made. And I won't excuse some of the things that have gone on in terms of poor practice, not about a particular case, but in general. Um, I think in, in, until, well, society will it will always happen in society. So I, I don't see how social workers or any one agency or any government or, or anyone really apart from the people that have actually done the killing can be blamed truly for for these crimes a sign of just how long this has been going on for is the fact that i, I wrote an article for the guardian i'm just got it up now on the 3rd of june 2016 i wrote an article in response to the murder of liam fee uh, Liam Fee was two-year-old when he was killed by Rachel and Naomi Fee. It was an absolutely tragic death. I mean, not of course all of these things are absolutely tragic, but um, this child, you know, the, the, the abuse that he suffered was absolutely shocking. And uh, how on earth, I mean, a lot of the time you can, you can, you can sometimes understand why people do evil things to other people often generational trauma plays into it, childhood abuse, drugs, alcohol, domestic abuse being suffered, significant mental health issues, abject poverty, and so on. A lot of the time, these can be driving factors for neglect of children and some emotional abuse of children where they're exposed to inappropriate adult behaviours. I might be the worst social worker in the world, Tilly, but I can't empathise with anyone that kills their own two-year-old child or any child. I just, I don't... I just can't see how that leap happens whatsoever. No. As soon as you lay hands on a child, that is a, a line that has been crossed. As you say, things like, not that we should ever hire, sort of categorise different types of abuse as being worse than others, because all abuse is, is leading to harm. Mm. But certainly neglect and emotional abuse, you can sometimes you can empathize yes, or many yes. times you can empathize with how it's happened yes but as soon as it's physical or sexual abuse it's you are doing an act of violence against yeah. another human being it's not an act of omission it's an yes. act of intention and that is inexcusable and i don't think that social workers should make excuses 
and and you can't hide behind things like poor mental health, drug use, intergenerational trauma, because if you've got capacity to make those decisions and in your life mm. and you know right from wrong, then you are intentionally harming an innocent life. Yeah, well said, Tilly. Well said. And I'm glad you've explained my, my thoughts better than I could myself on that one. This piece that I wrote for The Guardian, well over six, almost six and a half years ago now, I said, and the title is, Liam Fee's Murder Shows Social Workers Need More Time with Children. And this is what I was mentioning six and a half years ago that, yes, but basically the first of my argument was we're never going to stop every single parent from harming or, God forbid, even killing their own children. If a parent is so sick and twisted and damaged that they are of a want to do that, you simply can't. However, what we can do is we significant, we can significantly reduce that risk and we can bring those figures down. But you can't legislate away from that. You can't just crack the whip and make social workers work harder. What we need is we need more time with children. We need more time to work with children, to hear their voices, and more time to work with families. Now, Tilly, quiz time. In the six and a half years since I wrote that piece, do you think social workers have been afforded more time with children? <laughs> oh, I, don't, I mean, of course not. I mean, it's, no. it's just tougher by the day, isn't it? And caseloads are always rising. We're losing more social workers than we're gaining to our profession. Teams are struggling, more reliant on, on outside agencies to support um, lack of early intervention services that have just been decimated by the austerity and the government. It's, I mean, of course, social workers are spending less and less time with children and families by the day. Mm. I mean, we have had changes in those six and a half years. We've had some quite significant changes. We've had a massive diversification in terms of the entry routes to social work. We've had a lot more money going to frontline, uh, which with an aim to recruit a quarter of all child protection social workers through that route. We've had an expansion of the apprenticeship route. A lot more social workers coming through the apprenticeship route these days. We've got two in my current team at the moment, both great. We also have seen an update of working together. We've seen the commissioning of the Care Review by Josh McAllister, and we'll see the implementation of that hopefully soon. So we've seen efforts. It's not as if our government has not done anything. There are efforts being made, but it feels to me as if none of these efforts are yet having a valid real-life difference on the front line. Now, it may be, I, I, you know, I'm not an oracle. It may be that thanks to those efforts, things are better than what they might have been, that if we didn't have as many frontline uh, people coming through that cohort, as many frontline fellows coming through, that we would be worse off. If we didn't have as many apprenticeships coming through, we, we would be worse off. If we didn't have the update to working together, we might not be working as well. So I can't say whether this is saved things from being quite as bad, the government response. But I think I'm pretty confident in saying for certain that I haven't seen improvements. I just haven't, Tilly. I've got, I've got to be honest. I, I, I've seen improvements in individual local authorities, 
but from speaking to the people I speak to and from reading the feedback that we get, obviously we're in a valued position here at Social Work News. We get lots and lots of feedback from people. We monitor and, and administrate very large Facebook groups and Instagram following, so we see a lot of comments. Is it fair for me to say, Tilly, that things haven't got better? They have got worse. Yes, definitely. And I mean, I've been out of children's services now since, gosh, I think it was... Actually, I think it was 2016 when I left children's services. So, I, I, I mean, I'm not by any means up to date. So I'll be relying on you to to keep us current in this podcast. But from what I can see from a general social work perspective, things are struggling and dire. And I can't see that any real developments have been made that have significantly improved things for, for children or, or indeed for adults either. Let's have a look at some of the risk factors regarding child death, because what we've just talked about there in terms of potential improvements and what can be done. And, you know, bluntly, six and a half years ago, I called for more time. And still, six and a half years on for that, I would still be calling for more time with families. I believe that's what improves the situation for children and their carers and parents relationship-based practice, getting to know families, being there for them, actually having the time and capacity to do meaningful direct work and interventions. I don't necessarily think that children are saved by social workers sitting on the computers all day. Yes, of course, there is There is a need for paperwork. There is a need for recording. There's certainly a need for making sure that you've recorded a child's voice. And when it gets to court work, when it gets to reviews, there is a need for that to be documented. We can't just do away with all paperwork. That would be nonsensical. You need a record. And when a judge is making a decision about a child's life, it's very important that all the evidence is documented before them and it can be clearly set out and rationalised in the form of legal arguments when you're making such serious decisions, life-changing decisions, about where a child may live in future and how their life may turn out. That being said, I'm not calling for less paperwork. I'm calling for less cases because if you have less cases, you can spend more time with family and you can still do the paperwork. Instead, in the current system, it does feel to me, Tilly, as if paperwork is prioritised over children. It genuinely does. Thinking about what we could do better, I'm just going to run through uh, some research uh, regarding this matter. Um, Risk factors in relation to children being killed and children suffering significant abuse and neglect. I'm going to read these out to you, Teddy, just to see whether this is something you would agree with. I mean, you're probably just going to say, yes, I do agree with it because it's evidence facts, but I'm just going to run these by you anyway. So risk factors for victims. So these are two key risk factors that children murdered or seriously harmed by their parents and carers have in common. Number one is children being younger than four years of age. And number two is children with special needs that may increase caregiver burden, such as disabilities, mental health issues, and chronic physical illnesses. In what you've seen in terms of the news and what you've maybe experienced in the workplace with local serious case reviews and so on, Do those two themes kind of run parallel to your thinking on the matter in terms of the most vulnerable children falling into those two categories? 
Absolutely. Yes. I mean, children who are older than four and when they start school, they have those well, there's there's more opportunities for them to disclose abuse or or talk yes. to to teachers and and outside people about what's going on in their home lives when they're under four. They they haven't got those connections mm-hmm. with the outside world. They don't have those language or skills abilities that they're they're very much beholden to their parents or their carers. And again, with with children with disabilities they are infinitely more vulnerable um, yes. if, if they're not able to share their views or communicate um, their needs and wishes then that's going to make them more vulnerable too and it does often come that that they have higher caring needs mm. so greater strains on on parents and carers um, which makes them more vulnerable too so yeah I would definitely agree with those two points and even if you think of some of the children that we've discussed tonight, uh, Peter Connolly, Victoria Klimbier, we mentioned Stal Hobson, you know, and, and the five or six names that we've mentioned tonight, most of them have been four or under. Risk factors for perpetration, Tilly. What do you think some of the key risk factors and, and key themes linked to those who perpetrate violence and significant harm and even sometimes going to kill their own children. Well, you're going to have your toxic trio in there, aren't you? So drugs and alcohol, mental health, or poor mental health, and um, domestic violence. Um, That goes without saying. People that have had intergenerational trauma, people that are are struggling in other aspects of their life. But again, it comes back to what we said earlier. None of these should excuse these acts of violence at all and they might be indicators that they're more likely to happen but Mm -hmm. just because someone has poor mental health or or a substance misuse problem does not mean that they are going to harm their child it is a very small cohort of heinous individuals that uh, that do these commit these horrendous offenses against children You've got three of them there, bang on. Um, there are 10 in total. Caregivers with drug or alcohol issues, caregivers with mental health issues, caregivers who don't understand children's needs or development, caregivers who were abused or neglected as children, caregivers who are young or single parents or parents with many children, caregivers with low education or income, Caregivers experience high levels of parenting stress or economic stress. Caregivers who use spanking and other forms of corporal punishment for discipline. Caregivers in the home who are not a biological parent. And caregivers with attitudes accepting of or justifying violence or aggression. Now, within those, Tilly, there is one of those factors in there that leads to a 40 times increase in risk of a child being murdered in their family home. Which one of those that I've read out there do you think leads to a 40 times increase in risk to children? Oh, I don't know. I I mean, I would hazard a guess around the violence, but I'm not sure. You'll have to enlighten me. It's caregivers in the home who are not a biological parent. Really? Gosh. So if you you think... Well, uh, does it surprise me? Hmm. No. Yeah. Yes. No, it does surprise me that it's that significantly higher. I wasn't expecting that. 
let's think of the most high-profile cases, okay? Victoria Klimbeer, murdered by her aunt and her aunt's boyfriend. There we go. Caregiver in the home who's not a biological parent. Peter Connolly, known infamously as Baby P. Carers in the home who weren't biological parent. It was mother, mother's boyfriend, and mother's boyfriend's brother who were all complicit in his murder. Arthur Labinjo Hughes, his father's mother, his father's girlfriend was complicit in that murder. Star Hobson, mother's girlfriend, was involved in that murder. We could go on. So those are four cases that are high profile, you know. Victoria Klimbeer and Peter Connolly, due to the high profile status, Arthur Labinjo Hughes and Star Hobson, due to concerns this year. You've got Logan McGlanry, who was murdered earlier this year. He lived with neither of his biological parents. Look for this theme, Tilly. If you look for this theme, whenever you see, it's a grim theme to look for. Don't actively look for it, but when you, whenever you see these cases, the majority of the time, there is a carer in that home who was not a biological parent. Not all of the time, but the majority of the time. As I said, just just on the the child deaths that we've mentioned on today's show, and more I suppose or less all of them have that link. That's the difference, I suppose, between correlation and then cause and effect. Hmm. So it doesn't mean to say that if you are, if there is a child in that's living with someone that's not their biological parent, that they're going to be caused harm by that person. Hmm. But there is a correlation, and it's undeniable when you point it out like that. I can't, can't dispute you at all. Well, we're certainly putting out objective facts here, Talina. I'm offering no subjective personal views on that. I was somebody who, you know, spent time when my parents separated. Um, my mum had a new partner. Uh, it's not, you know, I was never subjected to anything like that. So I can speak from personal experience of having been brought up in a, in, a, in, a, in a family dynamic that was not living with both of my birth parents. And, of course, I work with many families who live in such family arrangements and would never dream of doing harm to their children. But as you say there, Tilly, in terms of the correlation, this is simply a fact. You know, that is a massive risk factor. Family risk factors, then. There are four key family risk factors, so not in relation to the individual caregiver, but in terms of the wider family. These four factors are families that have a household member or more in jail or prison, families that are isolated from and not connected to other people. So if we're thinking about EcoMaps here, a family that doesn't have many connections, or if we're thinking about you know, a genogram, families that don't have any immediate family that live with them, or perhaps live in a different part of the country, or the family uh, seen significant deaths or um, caregivers have become isolated. Families experience other types of violence, including relationship violence, which is what you touched on earlier. And families with high conflict and negative communication styles. So as well as those individual risk factors, we talked for the 10 there in caregivers. Can you see how there's also risk factors in relation to the wider family and kind of culture and dynamic of the family unit? Of course, that very much goes to the heart of systems theory that, that's drilled into social workers' heads right from the start of university. To have a flourishing ecosystem around a child is going to reduce those risk factors. As soon as you start bringing in tensions and, and 
and tricky dynamics or issues within that ecosystem, then there's it's going to heighten their risk of there being a problem. Yuri Bronfenbrenner, Bronfenbrenner's Ecological System Theory. Ah, that, there's a blast from the past, isn't it? <laughs> there we go. See? So some people some people will say that theory doesn't matter, but it does. If you, if you can take social work theory and relate it to on-the-ground practice, it really does matter, doesn't it? It does, but this is not what I was expecting from this podcast because we normally avoid these sorts of topics. But it, it goes to show that it does threads throughout social work and we can't avoid it we can't shy away from it um it's there and it can be helpful let's bring another blast from the past Teddy. i'm sure you'll have done this i mean you did your training a couple of years after me but do you remember thompson's pcs model oh i do indeed yes i remember that from first year of uni yeah for 10 um, points, tell me what the PCS... <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. Here we right. go, listeners, um, get, get ready. We're putting Tilly on the spot here. I, do I have time to quickly Google it? No, um, I'm joking. Um, is it personal, um, cultural and structural? Bingo, 10 right. points, Tilly. Ah, yes. See, I've, I've, I've earned my degree. You have, you have. Well done. <laughs> so the reason I mentioned that is... Um, as well as family risk factors, as well as individual risk factors for carers, and as well as vulnerable risk factors for children, when we look at uh, heightened risk of infanticide, we also have to consider community and sort of structural and immediate community uh, risk factors. And there are eight of these. Living in communities with high rates of violence and crime, Communities with high rates of poverty and limited educational and economic opportunities. Communities with high unemployment rates. Communities with easy, readily access to drugs and alcohol. Communities where neighbours don't know or look out for each other and there is a low community involvement around residents. Communities with few community activities for young people. Communities with unstable housing and where residents move frequently and communities where families frequently experience food insecurity. Does that chime with your experience and your feelings on this, Tilly? Regrettably so, yeah. I think that's pretty much can describe whatever the majority of cases that I worked with when I worked in children's services. So Mm. sadly, yes, those are key risk factors. So what we're going to do, guys, is this three key bits of research that I've drawn on when going through that. And we will put the links in the description of this podcast so you can check them out yourself. So, Tilly, knowing that we both feel we could do better if we had more time, knowing that the government are eager for a response, it's not as if they don't want to address this. We may think they're not going about it in the right way, but certainly there was a desire and hunger, rightly so, to address this issue. And in the context of those risk factors that we've gone through in terms of children's vulnerabilities, caregiving risk factors, family unit risk factors, and community risk factors, what can we do to stop parents killing their own children? Well, I don't think we can, can we? I think that we've made that pretty clear that, okay, there may be times when social workers and their assessments can make sure that they're being as robust as they can and collecting the information and hearing the child's voice and looking to those research findings and risk factors. 
But ultimately, we don't have crystal balls and there will unfortunately be children who die at the hands of their caregivers. And I don't think that there's very much that we can do to stop that happening. But what can we until- do to stop more? What can we, what can we do to stop this happening as much then? What would, what would help social workers get better at, at addressing this? Well, we need more social workers. Yeah. And without more money that comes into local authorities and, and a real drive to make social work a, a valued career and, and ploughing our, our time and resources into ensuring that those social workers get a decent education, they have good quality placements and they are then well supported in their jobs. I don't see that this is going to change because, as you said earlier, social workers aren't, can't work any harder. We're already at our limit. There's nothing. You can't magic more hours in the day. So until we have more people to do the job and more resources within our profession, I, I don't think it's going to be an easy task at all. Fair point, Tilly, and thank you for sticking up for those of us in children's social work rather than saying, well, Vince, it's you to blame. Well, it's yeah, of course it's, of course it's, <laughs> it's you. you personally, Vince. Yeah. It's all your fault. But you do get that. You know, it, the amount of times I've had Victoria Klimbeer or more likely Peter Conley, uh, most people tend to refer to him as Baby P, the amount of times I've been personally blamed for the death of children or told you lot or that social workers are to blame en masse for individual child deaths. I mean, we... We've said it in, you know, a, you know, a, a manner there that sort of, you know, makes parody of that. But that genuinely happens, Tilly. I'm not joking it here. Does. Genuinely, I have been, more times than I can remember, um, been lumped in with the death of a child on the other side of the country that I've had nothing at all to do with simply by virtue of the fact that I also happen to be a social worker. And this child, who, let's not forget, was killed by their own parents, happened to have a social worker at the time that happens that bizarrely happens all the time it does and it happens to me in adult services as well (laughs) and I'm like I'm not even in the right I'm in a different sector here um I mean angry and frustrated people members of the public just lash out at whoever they can and it doesn't excuse their behavior um but they can lump us all under the same umbrella and that's it uh, we, we can't take it personally because if we worried about every single thing that that everyone says to us then we wouldn't be a social worker we've got thicker skin than that we know that we know the truth yes. and we do what we can and if people don't like social workers or have a problem with social workers it's probably because that they've had some sort of involvement with them personally and perhaps hasn't gone as well as it could have but I'm not going to make assumptions about those people that do blame social workers, but just take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah, we've we've got to roll with the punches, haven't we? Because a lot of the time it comes from genuine sense of frustration. It's just it's communicated in that matter in that manner. I I I I'm a bit more optimistic than you on this one, Tilly. I think there's a lot. There is a lot that we can do to help save more children from these. You know awful and timely fates. If you think of those risk factors, um, we know that drug and alcohol issues are a risk factor. We also know that drug and alcohol services aren't great. Uh, I'm not saying the workers don't do the best, but the support isn't there that should be and it's resource driven. 
Equally of mental health, we know mental health issues are a risk factor. We know that mental health support is absolutely abysmal at the moment, really. As again, I'm sure the individual practices practitioners work with mental health are trying the hardest, but uh, the lack of support and, and how many people are, uh, are simply treated with medication and nothing else, and it never gets to the root of the problem. You know, it, it isn't getting better, it's getting worse. Caregivers who don't understand children's needs or developments, well, we would improve that factor if we hadn't have shut so many short start children's centre. Caregivers who are abused or neglected as children, therapy that can help address that and can help address that trauma and move forward in a more positive manner. Caregivers who are young or single parents or parents of many children, again, better early intervention support there to address that risk factor. Caregivers with low education or income, better training, better employment opportunities, better support for people who are out of work or struggling with work. Same with the economic stress issues. Uh, parents who use spanking and other forms of corporal punishment for discipline, again, that can be changed through education, adequate support. Caregivers in the home who are not a biological parent, that's not really a risk factor that can easily be changed. However, as we've seen that it is such a massive risk factor, I think social workers need far more awareness and far more training in dealing with those risk factors and making sure that people are adequately assessed if there is somebody new coming to the family home who you know, could potentially have issues that they're bringing with them. Family risk factors, families that have household members in jail or prison, I think a lot more can be done in relation to engaging with children, helping them understand the life story when they have a family member who's sent to prison. Family members that are isolated, more of a societal issue, but I do think that we can put money into local services and local community hubs that can help bring people together and get people out of the homes and actually engaging with people. And then we talked about you know, systems theory earlier, more support, more peer support, pro-social peer group. And then we look at community risk factors. Again, issues with rates of violence and crime, poverty, unemployment, access to drugs and alcohol. These are all things that can be changed, Tilly. Now, what I will say is that these things can't be changed by individual social workers alone. Yes, there are some things we could do better if we had the right support, we had the right training, we had better access routes that trained us better when we come into social work, and if we had more time. But there are some of these things as well, Tilly, let's get this right. Some of these things are societal issues, and it, it can't just be it can't just be the burden of blame placed onto social workers of fixing societal factors, which result in some people becoming so damaged and unwell that they kill their own children. That has to be on society and on the government as well as individual social workers, does it not? Yeah, and actually more so to society. Um, don't get me wrong, I don't want to stick up for Rishi Sunak or any of the Conservative leaders that we have because, well, they've done a terrible job and continue to do so. But ultimately, they can't fix all of society's problems either. And they're having to make some very difficult choices. Um, the budget is finite. And without taxes going up, where public sector workers are or public sector spends are then taken from our taxes it's 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 hard isn't it I mean we're in a cost of living crisis we're in a there's the war and there's economic hard times these are not things that any one government could fix um but don't get me wrong I, I, I don't want the conservatives to stay in power and let's hope that there's a general election that's not too far off 
but that's a that's a surprise, Tilly. I thought you were Team Rishi. Oh, of course I am. No, <laughs> um, I'm I'm sure there are some social workers out there that are conservative, as I don't know you and I have have met with them before in the past. But I think the majority of social workers out there are not pro conservatives, are they? Well, Tilly, speaking as someone who once had a Donald Trump supporter on his podcast, yes, I certainly have met some conservative social workers. And what I will say is it doesn't make them any worse at the job. And, and I, I'm, I may not agree with conservative social workers, but I want to be very clear that I know excellent conservative social workers, I know excellent left-leaning liberal social workers equally i know poor social workers in both camps so i think we have to make that clear don't we Tony? yeah exactly your political views are your own personal views and it doesn't make you a better or worse social worker as long as it doesn't impact on your job and sometimes course, sadly we, we do see an impact on the job and again We've discussed this before. We've we've had podcasts in the past where you and I have discussed social workers who have been overt about expressing views which they felt they could hold because of political or religious beliefs, but were rightly oppressive. And that has to be called out. I wonder how he's got on, by the way. That's a podcast for a different time. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to finish on this one, tell you, okay? In order to save more children from the fates we've talked about, you inevitably have to remove more children from their parents' care. And removing parent, removing children from their parents' care is the one thing that social workers do in my line of work that rightly is more difficult and fraught with more uncertainty and more ethical dilemmas than anything else, because in a sense, you are being asked to predict the future. Now, yes, there are some cases where it's it's bleedingly obvious. There are some cases where a child has suffered uh, horrific, non-accidental injuries, horrific abuse, horrific neglect, where it's obvious. But there are many times, and this is probably the majority, where it's not quite as clear-cut, where you are making an educated prediction. And that's the whole point of an assessment. That's the whole point of an assessment is to look at all the variables, look at the evidence base and make a decision. But if we are to save more children from the fates of some of the children we've discussed, you inevitably have to take more children from the parents' care. And these may be children taken from their parents' care on the likelihood of future risk and the balance of probability rather than the definite evidence of risk. So in that sense, Teddy, given how much criticism social workers get for child removals, are we damned if we do and damned if we don't? Of course we are. And we all know that the care system has many, many failings. And sometimes you are taking a child out of a, a, a less than ideal situation and putting them into a worse situation uh, within the care system. And I think we can't shy away from those hard facts that we know that happens to some children. Um, so in that sense, yeah, we are damned if we do and damned if we don't. How do you decide on what's the least worst way? Well, we have to rely on our, our value base, our evidence in front of us, our theories, our research and our practice and the support that we have around us. And ultimately, that's going to be the judge's call, not an individual social worker. 
And you've nicely tied me up there, Terry, to go full circle because we opened this show with a discussion of Finley Borden, the case that's going on, and how Finley died 39 days after being returned to his parents' care following a decision made by a judge. And we can get better. We can certainly get better. But are we ever going to be able to stop every single child death? No, of course we're not. There we go, guys. A, a difficult one, a difficult discussion, but one one that had to be had. And, and, and I hope that myself and Tilly have done that justice as best that we can, because it is... It is such an evocative and such an emotive subject, and rightly so, because when you were talking about children being killed by the parents and carers, you know, there's it, it's it's difficult. And and particularly when there are so many different risk factors that we've gone through and so many variables, and we can't predict the future. Social workers can't predict the future. We have to go on the evidence base. Yes, I do believe we can get better, but I agree with you, Tilly. I I, I think that. The idea that we can stop this ever happening fully is an unrealistic, an unrealistic expectation to place that burden on social workers is, is destroying. Nobody can hold the pressure of that. No profession can hold the profe- that, that. It's like saying a firefighter um, could stop every fire from happening or a nurse or doctor could prevent everyone dying. It's, these things will happen, won't they? Of course they will. And we can just do the best with what we've got and make the the most evidence-based, robust decisions that we can on that evidence. And let's hope that society becomes a little bit more forgiving of social workers. A, A noble note to end on, my friend. There we go, guys. Thank you once again for tuning in to Social Work Radio. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. Please leave us a review on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or any other platform you listen to us on. We'll be back next week. I do believe you may have a week off, Tilly. I do believe I've potentially got a guest lined up. But if not, Tilly, I'll be giving you a call, my friend, and you will be on. So we'll either hear from Tilly next week or in two weeks' time. If Tilly's not here, we have got a guest on the show. So tune in then. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.